I am so happy to be here today with Matthew. I met Matthew at the Chino conference and um, we're going to talk today about adoption. And we're talking with Matthew because he has some very practical experience of adoption. And uh, I thought in order to get started, it would be good, Matthew, for you to tell a little bit of your story, how you got involved in this corner and, uh, and maybe a bit about how you met your wife. And then I think we would be interested in what it takes to prepare a marriage to be involved in adoption. And then um, also talk about how you think about adoption, how it's affected your lives and any advice you might give to people who are thinking about it. Okay, wonderful. Um, well, starting there, you started with how I got involved in this corner of the internet, or at least how I was at Chino. So it was actually my wife who sent me to Chino. Uh, I would have loved to have gone. It would have been wonderful, but I wouldn't have because, you know, I'm busy. Um, we have four kids. Our oldest is seven. And so, yeah, life here is very busy. So I wouldn't have wanted to, or I wouldn't have uh, been willing to quite, but yeah, no, she sent me and took care of the kids and away I went, uh, I met you. So I, for probably the last four or five years, I've been on a journey, um, you could call it in and around this corner of the internet, but luckily the job that I have allows me to just have headphones in um, and listen to stuff. So a few hours a day, I'm able to listen to started with Peterson. Like I'm like the prototypical tunnel from like <laughs> Peterson to Peugeot to the Orthodox church. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I've, I, you know, I consumed a lot of the conversations that people were having um, that turned into, okay, I better start living this pretty quickly or else I'm going to be thinking about ideas without embodying them and I'm going to be becoming flighty. And so, yeah, so I was able to um, start participating in my local Orthodox church. Um, and yeah, and my wife and I just have been basically <laughs> trying to adopt as many kids as we can, as fast as we can. And so, yeah, so we adopted four kids in four years. So hold, um, hold on a second. Were you already married when you started this listening program? Oh, yeah. Okay. So it's a crazy and a very long story. So I'm going to really reduce it. Um, I was a missionary in Nepal. That's where I, I met Shawnee. Uh, we met in a prayer house in the mountains. Um, I won't name exact locations or names of other people or that kind of thing for confidentiality. But yeah, so we met in a prayer house. Um, I knew within 30 seconds, well, I should be careful. Within a minute or two of meeting Shawnee, I knew that I wanted to marry her. Um, and in fact, after that first meeting, um, I basically had two questions that were remaining um, for whether I would pursue Shawnee and, and try to marry her. Uh, one was, does she want to have kids? And the other was, does she want to adopt? And so um, I ended up getting a yes on both of those and away we went. So yeah, so we were missionaries um, in Nepal for years. Uh, she had been there a few years before I came, but yeah, uh, that was when I was like 19 that I first decided to move there. And so yeah, so we lived in Nepal uh, for years, and then it was in Nepal that we basically were led by God uh, after our marriage to leave Nepal to adopt our first two kids. So we came to Canada um, because there was an open door for us to adopt our first two. I won't, um, sorry, I won't say their names either, but um, our first two kids. And then, so let me, I'll just say that sentence again so you can kind of cut it if you have to. 
So we were led by God uh, from Nepal to come to Canada to marry our, to not to marry, I promise not to marry, to adopt <laughs> our first two kids. And then um, after that, we basically like six months into our first adoption, we kind of looked at each other and decided like, oh, I see. This is a way higher path and a way higher thing than anything we were doing in Nepal. Um, and so, yeah, so we ended up moving here and putting roots in in order to keep adopting. And um, yeah, it was once I once we got to Canada, pretty much as soon as we got here that I discovered Jordan. I went from like a really kind of Protestant, charismatic, Bethel, YWAM kind of a world um, into Canada where we knew nobody. And so all of a sudden, yeah, I found Peterson, um, took him very seriously. And um, yeah, like Peterson and Peugeot, I would say, have been my main two helping voices um, who have really helped me take big steps up in my life. Big steps up in terms of being a better dad and a better husband or? Um... Oh, yeah, everything in participating in reality properly, in becoming more loving, in um, stopping. Like definitely with Peterson, it was stopping lying, like becoming an honest, true, sincere person. Um, and so he was able to kind of cut away a lot of the chaff um, that, yeah, that I that I had kind of grown up in and always always had participated in. Um, and then after Peterson, see, I took Peterson extremely seriously, but I was always left like, like, okay, dude, um, we can't like sit on the fence here. There's like, we got to go deeper. There's something deeper. There's something more like I need to be all chips in on whatever, like you're talking about, basically you're talking about the principles of God, but you're not quite, um, you're not quite there in terms of like a ritual participation. Um, and then I found Peugeot and, um, yeah, he started talking and everything just landed. I was like, okay, this is what I have thought. This is how I felt for years. And this makes a lot of sense. Um, and so, yeah, it was quite, it was like a year and a half or two of really spending a long time dwelling on essentially, um, the orthodox and symbolic worldview that Peugeot presents. Um, and then I reached out to my local, um, my local church here and, yeah, in fact, my priest actually just sent me a video from Peugeot this morning. So I have a really cool priest. So That's so great. And you guys live in Canada. Mm -hmm. it, it, given your background, you have it, it, the, that beautiful brick background behind you. You have a lovely rustic aesthetic. It's pretty cool. So I'm assuming you also garden and those kinds of things. Oh, we love to. Uh, we love to work towards gardening we um we acquired an, an incredible home and property but it's been a ton of work to kind of get up to steam um yeah so we didn't have a garden this last year but no it's quite a like homesteading life um all through winter so we have a, a lot of trees here um and so i'm renovating the house with our own trees like we have our own sawmill and so a lot of my life is you know falling trees putting them on the mill putting them through the mill drying them running machinery that kind of thing um, especially through winter. And then through summer, I have a business, like a trade business. Uh, I clean windows professionally. And so, yeah, both of those are such a blessing to have work. I would choose work where I can listen and dwell on ideas, like for half the pay of other work, um, if I had to. It's so important to me. Like I, I've been realizing just how important it is for me, even every day to be dwelling on high ideas and allowing them to kind of transform me and transform 
down from my head, down, down, down into my body and my actions. The vertical causation. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Yeah. I think that's one of my big challenges is that it's easy for me to get get up in my head and understand the principles and understand exactly what's being asked of me. And it's much harder to let it percolate down and actually change my, my behavior. So, yeah, 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 absolutely. You are, um, yeah, you are like me in that sense. That's for sure. I think that, I think Christ is such a perfect image, like the vertical meeting, the horizontal is that there's a way in which like there's a, there's something so romantic about the mind. There's something so romantic about the forms, but it's actually in embodying them. It's actually in the incarnation that it's realized, like in both senses of the words, as John Verbeke says, to, to realize it, um, to become aware of it, but also to make it real. It's like, you have to have both of those. Um, so yeah, it's a challenge for me too. I really focus myself. Um, I focus on embodiment in that sense. It's like, like, even like I mentioned before, like I have a, a an innate fear of dwelling too high in the sky and just like building my little castle up there. And, you know, actually my wife, Shawnee is really, <laughs> is a really helpful uh, partner in regards to this because she will like more than anybody else and more than I probably can as well. She will, if I'm like creating some little castle in the sky and ideas, ideas, and she'll just be like, yeah cut like <laughs> no <laughs> that's not landing that's not embodied um yeah and so she definitely keeps me honest in that regard um so yeah what does um what does the word eve mean in the original hebrew it means beneficial adversary not mm -hmm. helper it means beneficial adversary so yeah um so you said that that you when you had the the first adoption and you had that child home with you for six months at that point, you realized, wait, this is much greater calling. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you were, you were thinking at that point, something deeper about adoption than just the action of adopting. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. And it was um, our first two. So we've done two adoptions and each time it was a sibling group of two. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was just before adopting, I think it's the case, this isn't just with adopting, this is with having kids. It's the case that beforehand you have ideas about it, but the reality of it is it's your whole life. It's like your entire life is participating in this pattern of being a parent and raising a child to become a good person. And in that sense, like it is the best opportunity to self-empty um, and then as you self-empty you create the world literally so yeah so I would say within the first months um, I don't know exactly what point it was yeah it was it was like okay we're doing this now and it was for one I would also say it was way easier than we anticipated and that's partly because our kids were way like easier than we were expecting um, but we also went from a really difficult life of missions and like living in way below the Western poverty line in Nepal in like a tin shanty with a family of like, we didn't, we lived with people who nobody spoke English. Um, and so we went from that life to like this super luxury, rich lifestyle of the Western world at the same time that we did the, the adoptions. And so, yeah, I would say as time went on, um, we kind of just realized 
I see. Like I'm, we are participating in something way, way higher. Everything that we were doing in Nepal was very visionary um, and it was very theoretical and it was very difficult. And a lot of it was like, it would, it's kind of like what we're talking about being romanticized in the mind, but not landing in like the actual actions. Um, and so we were trying to do all this mission work in Nepal. And then we come to Canada and it's like, oh my goodness, there's literally nothing that we can participate in that's better in our daily life than taking a child who needs a family and just changing that, making it so they have a family. And now they can grow up and not go through what people go through if they don't have a family when they're small. So yeah, so then we decided, um, actually it was, it was in a moment of, uh, we went through some really hard stuff for a couple of years, um, trauma and difficulty. And so it was in the, kind of right in the bottom of all of that. Um, there was a, the exact moment I can tell you when we decided to adopt again, um, there was this big Protestant charismatic, uh, church meeting stadium gathering kind of a thing. It was called the send. It was like, the biggest stadium gathering since um, Billy Graham days. And at the send, uh, a friend of mine, actually, Andy Bird, presented to everybody, hey, the Bible says to take care of the widows and the orphans. So let's essentially have a perspective shift as Christians that that's the go-to. Like that's our go-to as families that we will adopt kids. Um, and so if anybody's willing to join me on that, uh, then stand up and me and Shawnee were live streaming it and we stood up in our room and we said, okay, like, yeah, we are going to, we're going to do this. Um, and yeah. And so then we sent a message to our social worker and away we went and within, I don't know, it must've been from then two years and um, yeah. And we adopted our next two. So yeah. And uh, Lord so willing. What, we, so what ages we, are they all now? Seven, uh, three, uh six and five so we have three in a row like right now our three oldest are kindergarten grade one and grade two that's where they are right now then we have a three-year-old who's at a basically like a daycare right now mm -hmm. okay but but they're the siblings were the, the, the two older two oldest and the right now two. are not siblings right and then the two youngest are not siblings uh it's actually did, the did other it go way. like so this it, no it goes like this the older two uh, uh -huh. we adopted first and then the next two five and three we adopted oh, second, okay. Okay. just last march okay yeah. okay yeah so um so i know you don't want to go into the backgrounds of the kids and that's fine but i'm assuming if they were that old already when you adopted them that they um had developed some responses to the difficulties that they faced in life and so how yeah. do you deal with those challenges? Oh, we're just flying by the seat of our pants. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me for like some great marvelous um, uh, explanations or, or, you know, we're trying to figure it out, trying to uh, be both as loving in the sense of good judgment and also in the sense of compassion, like the right hand and the left hand of God at all times. Um, and that's totally different for different kids. It's totally different for different seasons. Like the kids seem to apparently they seem to kind of go on a cycle of like testing and trying to figure out the boundaries and then like settling and being content. And so um, depending where they are on that cycle, it really depends how we need to respond. Um, but yeah, like they, they definitely have like, uh, so our, the youngest one when we adopted her was uh, she was six months old. 
Um, so that was great. Like, that's wonderful. But then two of them were about two years old. And then the other one was three years old when they came home. The biggest difference, though, there there were uh, really bad traumas that happened before the government, because it takes a lot, especially like here in Canada, it takes a lot for the government to take kids away from their birth families. Um, so yeah, there was definitely a lot of hard things that they went through. But the foster families, foster families are angels. Like they're absolutely angels in general. And like they get such a bad rap. <laughs> There's always this like myth, and I'm sure it exists somewhere sometime of some like, foster family doing it for money and like being mean or nasty or something it's it's complete bs like generally speaking people who are doing this are angels and so we had all three we had three different foster families because one of the um, sibling groups was split so all three of them were they are like very strong christian beautiful couples who they weren't just doing it for like money or something they were like their perspective is literally how can we bring as much love into the world as we possibly can? And they do it through foster care where they can keep kids from trauma that usually is so associated with foster care and stuff. And so we had three amazing foster families. We have great friendships with them. Um, and yeah, so they just poured into our kids before we came along and were able to adopt them. So that made a huge difference for sure. But yeah, like they, they have, um, they have their own difficulties. I think all kids have difficulties. Um, like all kids have certain special needs. Um, I definitely think like the fact that our kids are generally pretty typical kids and um, the trauma was stopped at the point that it was stopped in generally speaking means that we're able to continue adopting. Like that's all it means. It means that we have the capacity to keep going. If we adopt another child and they're very high special needs, that might be it. It's like, okay, well, we don't have more to give than than this, right? And so, yeah, I would say. Um, so does that mean <laughs> that mean you're still thinking about adopting more? Yes, uh, we are. We'll see. Um, I <laughs> I want to be careful of these kinds of things, but certainly, yeah, we want to keep to keep adopting as long as we have capacity. So it's kind of like. You take a big chunk off and then it takes a long time to like chew off when you bite more than you can chew. It takes a long time to just like chew, 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 but humans are so adaptive. And so that's something I think that my wife and I really realize maybe something in terms of like <laughs> wisdom I could actually give is just to realize how adaptive we are as humans. You can choose the life that you want, like who you want to be and the life that you want to live. You can kind of just choose it and just like make the jump. And then if you're committed to that and commitment is extremely, um, it's a very symbolic, beautiful word. It's commitment. If you're committed to that, then it's like you stick to it and then you adapt and that's your new normal. And so that's what happened. Like the first, our first adoption is like, you take a big chunk out. Okay. Now you just chew, 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 adapt. And okay, now this is normal. Now you take another big, big chunk. Um, yeah. And I would say to reduce like, the story of my wife and I and our relationship with God, I would say it's one of adventure. Um, it's one of looking for looking looking for relationship with God. And that that requires like a constant changing, that requires a constant expansion. Um, like we're very, you know, conservative. Um it's funny, like asking about the story of my wife and I mean, we actually like we before we didn't even like kiss before we got married, the day before we got married. 
Um, we're like very traditional people, very conservative, you know, don't have a TV, whatever. But um, I think core to that is you always have to be expanding. Like you can't just be the center of the circle. And so as long as you're expanding, that's like, you know how Peterson talks about being and becoming. And then you had a little, <laughs> I won't say clash, uh, even though I just did a little bit of a little rub with Ian McGilchrist because McGilchrist's version or McGilchrist's God is, is becoming um, and he struggles with being. So you need both. Like you need the center and you need to always be expanding and growing and growing. Um, and if you just do one, things become pathological. So, yeah. So like, we're always just trying to take the next bite at the moment. We're definitely still just trying to chew and like adapt to our last adoption, but um, it's our hope to continue adopting until we can't anymore until our capacity is at absolute maximum. Um, yeah. I, I like that paradigm because it's in the, that continual expansion that you keep coming to the edges of your capacity. I think Peterson said one time that I thought such a brilliant, he has a way of saying one little thing that cap encapsulates enough to write a whole book, you know, that, that we meet the transcendent when we err. Mm -hmm. So until you err, until you get to the edge of your knowledge and you start making mistakes, you have no idea that you even need God really. Yeah. And exactly. so the more you keep growing, the more you discover that you need. And, and if you don't push out on those boundaries, you never discover where your edges are and where you need God. And the mm -hmm. truth is we need God from the very start of that first little seed. We need God in all of that expansion. But but we fool ourselves and we think, OK, I've got this covered. And then we think we don't need God. But then something happens that forces us to expand a little bit mm -hmm. and uh at the he, another time he said the same thing basically that that you meet the transcendent at the edge of your knowledge um, yep. and of course he always uses the example of satan from milton being the one who thought he had it all together and thought he had all the knowledge he needed yeah um, and that's the trap we get into that's why it's so important to embody whatever it is that we learn mm -hmm. precisely yeah, exactly. And it's, so it's a constant being and becoming. Um, and I think that a lot of people probably now don't take this as like a hundred percent for sure, but I think probably when you look at people's lives, you can derive their ontology of being and becoming by their actions. Like you can look long enough and you can see, Oh, I see. You think God is being, Oh, I see. You think God is only becoming. Um, and so typically like, and it breaks down, it breaks or it, it expresses itself. I would say in masculinity and femininity, it expresses itself in the left and the right. Um, and so, yeah, and you really see it when it becomes patho pathological. Uh, <laughs> curveball. So uh, my wife and I have been watching Twilight and I'm seeing this in, um, I'm seeing this in Edward and Jacob, which is Edward is so clearly pathological order and Jacob is so clearly pathological chaos. Um, and so, yeah, we've been watching that and enjoying, it's so cheesy and hilarious and, dark and um but yeah we watched two movies or two like series um over the last few months one was lord of the rings which is like a good and reasonable vision of the world and the other is twilight and somewhere between everybody loving lord of the rings and everybody loving twilight like the worldview of our culture kind of became really corrupt and and uh and strange and so now instead of like yeah i i mean i, was, I said to shawnee yesterday like 
if Aragorn walked into this place where like Bella is with Edward and Jacob, she wouldn't even notice him because he's normal because he's, it's good. It's a proper hierarchy. Um, it's actually Bella wants pathological order and pathological chaos. And so, yeah, the two feed off each other. I think that's, you know, that's what we see certainly politically at the moment as well. That makes me think of an old book that I read. Oh my goodness. What was the name of it? And he talks about it. It's a, it's a bit of, you know, in the, in the eighties and nineties, there were a lot of Christian books that came out that were nibbling at the edges of psychologizing. And this particular book was using psychology, but trying to ground it biblically. And he was talking mm -hmm. about, um, the type of person who seeks drama. So if you're always looking for pathological order or pathological chaos, you need drama in your life. And the reason you need drama is that um, if you can keep the drama coming, basically you don't have to take a look at who you are and where you're at. Wow, absolutely. And, no, and I, I mean that also that. fits into the whole idea now where people just sit and while they're while their life away watching Netflix and because they have to feed themselves with drama all the time because that shuts down all the other questions that come up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a lie. Uh it's it's dishonesty. It's like a lack of integration. Integration is always that meeting of the mind and the body. See, I've been talking, uh, I've been talking with some friends about like meaning. Um, because I was thinking, I just realized like a couple of days ago, your channel's called the meaning code. I wonder if I could boil down what I think meaning is. And it I it was very clear to me. Um, it's not something I've heard exactly from someone else, but you'll hear Peterson, you'll hear Peugeot, you'll hear the Orthodox theology of theosis in this. And it's just meaning is what happens. It like meaning is when the mind and the body meet with the truth. It's like, you have to have those three things. So you have to have your mind and your body in alignment. And that's very difficult, um, but they can't just be in alignment on something that's not true. It has to be in alignment in pursuit of the true. And so when you are doing that, that's meaning. If you're missing any, any one of those, you don't have meaning in your life. Like if you, if you have in your mind, like we talked about, you have all these great ideas, you have all this like great thinking and you can hear that. And it's like, but then people don't embody it. We see that and we're so repulsed. It's like, okay, that's hypocrisy. No, you're not living it out. Christ on the cross is the absolute embodiment of the three. It's like absolute perfect theory and perfect embodiment, the vertical and the horizontal meeting, literally meeting on the cross. And so that it looks like self-emptying. What it looks like is Okay, let me take you on a little illustration. This will be very um, orthodox sounding of me, but a little, little illustration that kind of helps me to understand the idea of theosis in general. Um, and so I'll use a leg of a chair as an illustration. And so you can imagine like, you can imagine a leg of a chair just sitting on the ground and everybody seeing it and they would identify it as, oh, that's the leg of a chair. They would give it its particular identity. They would see it for its multiplicity. And that leg of a chair could be egoic and it could go, oh, great, everybody, everybody's attention is on the fact that I'm this multiplicity. I am leg of a chair. But in doing that and being separated, yeah, the ego of leg of a chair 
lives, but what it's actually supposed to be like participating in, the telos of leg of a chair, is supposed to be participating in chairness, like the logos of chair. And so it's actually in self-emptying leg of a chair that leg of a chair can participate in chair, which is all these different multiplicity, all these different ways you could categorize different parts. This little atom of that little grain of wood, you could say here, there, you could break it down so many ways, but they all have to sacrifice their idiosyncrasy in order to participate in chairness. But it doesn't stop there. Like a chair by itself is the same thing again. And now it's like chair by itself, everybody goes, wow, what a great chair. But instead what a chair should be is participating in chair and table set, which should be participating in family. Family should be participating in a whole ritual life under God. And so in this way, you can see how like through death, through self-emptying, you can participate in higher and higher things. Um, so another another really good illustration, I did a leg of a chair to kind of give the inanimate object idea, but you can see it even with like living things like a tree thinking about this in regards to the symbolism of why christ is a carpenter in, in scripture because like what i do for a lot of my work is literally take the tree in the ancient way like me as one person i go from the standing tree to the actual like finished product wood wherever it's going to be and so in doing that i'm like i keep every time i think about the symbolism of what i'm doing it goes like a level deeper and so it's like, okay, well, this is clearly heaven meets earth. This is clearly a symbol of the incarnation. The fact that something's literally up in the sky, a natural object, the natural object that we have in the world is the tree and it's up in the sky and I'm going to kill it, take the life away and it will fall and it will land in the earth. And so it's through that death that now not only do I kill it in that way, but I cut off all of its branches, all of its glory, all of its life, all of its fruit, take all that away and I take the wood and I get, I even cut off the bark. Like you can think of bark, garment of skin. You can think of it like, um, yeah, just cutting cutting the life, of, the, the life away from the outside. You're left with the wood in the middle. And it's like, okay, is it just death? And the answer is no, actually, this goes back to being and becoming. This goes back to proper participation. I can then take that chair, oh, sorry. I can then take that wood from the tree and I can make it into something. Like you could imagine a tree in the woods nowhere and it's been killed. It's self-emptied of its tree identity, but then it's made into a beautiful beam at the top of a, a cathedral and a church. And all of a sudden what it is has died in a way, but it's now participating in like the highest thing it could possibly participate in. And so you can see it, leg of a chair is a, is a really good way to look at it. Um, and you can see that through all of reality. And so, yeah, and so I would say, Peugeot said on your channel, and this was helpful, he said, love is the coexistence of unity and multiplicity. And it's like, you have, yes, you have the multiplicity of all the different aspects, all the legs of the chairs, all the surfaces, all the grains, all the molecules. You could break it down into so many categories, but they're unified in chairness, which is unified in family, which is unified ultimately in the one. And so in this matter, like you can see how self-emptying is, literally is the incarnation and self-emptying is how we can participate. And I think this is very similar to how uh, the Orthodox would describe the doctrine of theosis. That is such a beautiful picture. And all the time you were talking, you know, I mean, I'm always thinking about Michael Levin's cells and you've probably heard me talk about this before, but um 
he he has these little xenobots that are they're not artificial they're perfectly natural but they they arise from the skin cells of a frog being shaved off the frog and being uh, set in some medium and in that medium they gather together and they form these little they somehow they want to keep living. And in order to do that, they gather together to become little motile organisms that can move around inside inside the Petri dish. And they, they're even so interested in reproducing that they'll gather up all the loose cells that they see into little baby xenobots. And of course, that's the end of the reproduction. At the at the end, when all the skin cells are gone, there's no more outside resource. They can't reproduce like a regular frog would, but mm-hmm. but they still have frog DNA in them. And mm-hmm. one time, Michael Levin was talking about his xenobots, and he said, "Now, just think about it." He said, "All these years, those frog skin cells have been bound in slavery to be tied into this larger frog and be part of, uh, you know, nothing but a skin cell." And, and here they've been liberated and now they can do what they want to do, move around and have this great life. And I'm sitting there thinking, Michael, Michael, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I can see why he might think that way. But what if yeah. the, the life of that skin cell as a skin cell is, is uh, serving such a much higher purpose and a more meaningful purpose in continuing to do what it is called to do. Mm-hmm. And um, so skin cell, I, I can't give them trendy names like you did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Egg by itself or chair by itself, <laughs> skin cell by itself, I guess. Um, skin cell by itself in, inside of a Xenobot has a very limited scope in terms of what it can do, but skin mm-hmm. cell in a frog all of a sudden yeah. now participates in the life of the frog and in the life of the whole ecosystem that the frog is. Oh, it goes of. back to commitment. This goes back to the, remember how I keyed in the, the word commitment. See, like commit the idea of commitment is okay. I'll say one thing before I go there, which is um, do you remember in Chino, even Verveke spoke about freedom as a constraining towards mm-hmm. the good? Yeah. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Constraint so, like, is such an important word. Yeah. What? Yeah. And so it was wonderful to hear that from Verveke. Like, obviously, you know, someone who's fully practicing the Christian ritual, you can see, like, clearly they understand, like, you commit to the particular good. Like, you have to choose this particular narrative. Like, for me, it's like, okay, I'm in this particular house. Oh, man, we got to talk about the Eucharist in this manner. Okay, I'm in this particular house. And I have this particular family. This particular person is my wife. These particular people are my children. And so it's like, here's my narrative. And now I can either be committed and 100% into this. And like, basically, so Peterson always quotes Jung, modern man doesn't find God because he doesn't look low enough. And that that speaks to me. Like, I, I don't I don't love Jung. Jung deifies the self. That's a problem. But <laughs> But that quote speaks to me because it's like, you can see... Again, it goes back to the leg of the chair thing. You can see how now you don't rest in this universe. You don't rest in the particulars. You're always resting. You only find rest in God. Finally, rest is found in God. But it's in the particular narrative that you can pursue it. Like, this is my life. This is what I have. And so it's here that I can find God. I can find, like, my pathway to love right now is mainly my wife and my kids. It's like, this is my pathway. And it's that exact thing we're talking about. The 
vertical causation, you could say, or like the form of the good or goodness, the transcendentals meeting, but also it has to be embodied. And so I have my narrative, here it is. And so, yeah, and so the idea of commitment is where this really makes sense. You're saying, you're talking about these cells, like they have to be committed to frog in order to even be, they have to be constrained. And so, yeah, so like I have friends, um, close friends, I have a very close friend, actually, I'm going hunting with him this weekend, who calls himself an atheist. And um, and he he looks at my religious life and he he always asks, like, what do you get out of this? What do you get out of going to church? And I remember having such a hard time answering that because I'm like, what do I get? Like, and all of a sudden I'm kind of in this like me frame and it just doesn't make sense that way. It's like, hold on. Um, I, I met him at jujitsu. We participate in jujitsu together. We train all the time. Um, he, he He's injured right now, but he, generally speaking, like I can say to him, okay, what do we get out of jujitsu? And all of a sudden it's like, he can understand how that doesn't make any sense. It's like, dude, we're here to participate in jujitsu. And that's way higher than sitting on the couch at home. This is just way better than doing that. And so it's the same thing with like, why do I go to church? I'm like, okay, well, I go to church to participate in God. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do with my life. Okay. Like love is a way higher way of being. Um, it's way deeper. It's a way greater adventure. And so I'm pursuing that. And this is my, this is where it lands for me in the highest manner. And I think like the ultimate symbol, the the um, ultimate symbolic moment of that is the Eucharist. But this idea of commitment is so important. So, okay, here, here's a good thing. Um, Peugeot talks about how, he actually talked about this in, in Chino. When you self-empty, you create, you like the act of self-emptying creates. And so you can see that with parenting. It's like, in order for me to create a good child, I have to self, to the degree to which I self-empty and I'm not loving my passions. I'm not loving my idiosyncrasies. I'm not being prideful. If I can die to those things and then this child can be made like into a better person. And so like you create reality through self-sacrifice through self-emptying. And so Peugeot talks about that a fair bit, but I think in between like self-emptying and creating the world, there's like the way to understand it is commitment. It's like when you commit, just like you're saying, these cells committing to the frog, that's how frogness comes to be, which is way higher than just that cell on its own. That's how chair comes to be, is when the legs of chairs participate. And so we can all as members, all every member of the cosmos, St. Maximus is like, <laughs> he's wild in that literally the entire cosmos, even like the every grain of sand, the, the fact that like this little metal lid every bit of the cosmos can properly participate in God. I think that's true. It can be done. Um, it's a matter of proper self-emptying and it's a, it's, it's being and becoming. Well, I do want to go on and talk about the spirit of adoption. And you had mentioned earlier that harmony was something you wanted to talk about. So I do want to get those two, but a thought occurred to me while you were talking about this, the, the self-emptying and with children and I'm thinking, I'm always thinking systematically. I have a really hard time of breaking myself of <laughs> because systems are so propositional. But, <clears throat> but 
in the ordinary course of things, a person would think, well, if I'm self-emptying, if I'm getting rid of all my pride and everything, and and I and I'm doing that, and I have this child here, in in a systematic mechanical world, all the junk that I'm offloading would land on the children. <clears throat> I get rid of my pride, they get filled up with pride. I get rid of my my ego, they get filled up with ego. But it works exactly the opposite way when you're self-emptying in order to love. Mm-hmm. Because what what you're you're self-emptying and you're receiving, and what you're receiving, your child is also receiving. So it's like we mm-hmm. both get to receive at the same time by by my mm-hmm. willingness to self-empty. Yeah, that's a really good way to talk about it. Like co-participation. Like I'm saying, and I'm the authority over it. Like I'll I'll say my my oldest child, my son, I can say I'm the authority over him. And so I can say, okay, we're going to participate in this better thing. We're going to participate in this higher level of love. And we then can co-participate in that. Man, that's really wise. That's really good because you can see that in like a marriage, obviously, in the same manner. It's like you can... You can choose for the both of you, as long as there's any kind of connection or relationship, you can choose for yourself and for the other person what you co-participate in. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think that's I think that's definitely um, a good way to talk about it, for sure. Well, I, I once saw an illustration that I think attaches to this a little bit, and it was a, a pitcher full of water that had a piece of saran wrap wrapped tight over the top of it. And then you try to fill the pitcher and of course all the water just bounces off because this, you know, you're wrapped mm-hmm. tight. You're not letting it in. Right now, if you take the top off, there's only a little space in the top of the pitcher. So you can only get a little bit of water in there and uh, th- that you have to empty out in order to allow more water in and empty mm-hmm. out in order to allow more water in. And, uh, but when once you're allowing the water in, then that there's an overflow that can you're not only getting filled, you're overflowing to others. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I think yeah, that's got to be the I'm way almost, it works. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, I would almost want to think of it as like two different things. Like the pitcher should be full of water being renewal and um, change and and the spirit or however you want to think of it. Um, or do, let's just say love. And then there's something else, like a different substance, something maybe solid and dark, like a rock. It's like you have to empty the rocks out in order that the pitcher can be filled with water. Give more, give more space, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 precisely. Yeah, or or another way that they picture it sometimes is if the pitcher is a cylinder, but the cylinder has like a three-inch diameter or something, the same cylinder that is now a five inch diameter, the same amount of water is not going to fill it nearly as much. So the more Mm. that you can broaden yourself, the more room there is to be filled, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But the picture of getting rid of the rocks, that's a good picture. (laughs) So you, you said that you had been thinking deeply about the spirit of adoption and how that relates to a lot of other things. Have we covered that already? Or did you have more to say about that? I mean, a little bit. It's um, I think it's definitely in what we talked about in regards to commitment. It's it's in what we talked about in regards to being and becoming and expansion. Um, but I mean, I think about it all the time. It's not something I understand. And you can help me. I'm sure that you can help me understand it. Um, it's I can maybe meditate in and around it, but I can't. Well, understand. since I've never done it myself, I doubt very much that I have any wisdom whatever to give you. I mean, you you've I, got the practical wisdom because you've got boots on the ground. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm I'm now I'm kind of speaking in the realm of mainly in the realm of like thinking about it in terms of what it fun most fundamentally is. It seems to me like somehow when you when we read scripture, it seems like God creates, there's God the Father who creates, and then there's God who redeems. And there's kind of like these two beautiful things that happen. It's like creation and redemption. And somehow it seems throughout scripture over and over, not just like in one story here or there, but just in the whole pattern of like where God goes. Um, I, I should probably be more precise with my language, like where people are finding God in, you know, this one particular guy on the top of the mountain and then this tribe and then it goes out and then Christ comes and through his death and resurrection. Now it's the Gentiles. It's like, it's the foreign, it's the, it's the, we talked about there's, um, we talked about there's two different women uh, in regards to adoption. And so it's the same kind of thing. It's like, there's this foreign, there's this foreign good potential. Like ground is a really good um, analogy for potential, I think. And so you can think of like seed grows into a tree, but it needs good ground. And so there's like, there's more ground over there. And so all of a sudden this tree logos of this tree is now making itself manifest over there. So there's something about the redemption, which is so attractive i think more than anything when i think about like why have we adopted it's very strange like as far as we know we can have bio kids um and you know we're very young like yeah this is a choice that we made to live lives adopting kids um and so i think like most fundamentally that is a matter of being us being attracted to the beauty of redemption the beauty of like the spirit of adoption. And there's something so beautiful about creation and there's something so beautiful about redemption. But for whatever reason, both my wife, Shawnee and I are like obsessed and so attracted and so called and invited by the beauty of redemption. And I, I can't tell you why that was placed in us from the beginning. Um, Certainly, like for me, I think of uh, my mom was adopted. So my whole world exists because my grandpa, who was a great man, decided to adopt my mom um, many, many years ago. And so I always knew, okay, my whole world exists because of the choice of someone to literally to adopt. Um, but for my grandpa to kind of partner with the, the side of God that is adoptive. Um, and so it, you know, it was in me, but it's beyond, it's beyond just one little example. Like I see it all through scripture. I, I, I certainly see it in like the story of the prodigal son. It's like the one son stays, he's preserved. He's right in the middle of the center of the circle. And then the other son goes way out and then he comes back. And for some reason, it seems like God is just so thrilled with redemption. <laughs> and so, and I, I, I understand the beauty of it. I can't tell you, it doesn't like, I can't tell you logically how it all makes sense. Like I look at the story of Adam and Eve um, and I marvel at the story. It's like, okay, somehow redemption in the end is seems like a higher or something version of creation. But then I can always hear people in my head being like, dude, you're speaking heresy. Like <laughs> you cannot say that like the fruit in the tree, sorry, eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was actually like part of God's plan or something like that. So no, it's like, it's absolutely mysterious. What I can say is that I'm very attracted to that, not just in my mind or romantically um, in the realm of ideas, but I'm living a whole life in pursuit of that aspect of beauty. I think it's a different, um, 
it's just a different kind of beauty. Um, I don't know how I could give, maybe I could give you a little example. Can you see these two paintings behind me? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the blue one was, I just did that from scratch and it was intended to be an abstract painting. Um, and just, I tend to think a lot about um, the cosmos and everything. So so you see pictures of like rifts in 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 the cosmic structure and you see moons and you know all that kind of stuff so it's it's just meant to be you can think about it a lot of different ways i tend to think of it as genesis that's the way i look at it is this you know cosmos arising the other one um is a painting that i did during a you can see it's some sheep in a with a tree and then there's a second tree that's on fire in the background that that was a painting that i did during a a worship service um, while some a wonderful classical pianist was playing classical worship music. And I had the opportunity to paint that during the worship service. But that painting is um, what I call one of my redemption paintings because I was going to be at the church and I knew I needed to start from scratch with a painting, but if I had started from scratch with a white canvas, that painting would have turned out very different. Hmm. So um, this painting is this painting right here of, of um, this is not, you can't quite see the whole thing, but hopefully you can get the idea. I can see it. Yeah, yeah. okay, so this is a painting of Pharaoh's daughter that I did many years ago. Yeah. It's a painting that where I started with a, with a white canvas. And so you can see it's, you know, fairly realistic looking. Um, and the edges are a little bit more representational and you can very clearly see what's being done there. That's mm. starting with a white canvas. So that's one kind of creation. You have an idea in mind and you're going to make this thing and you know exactly what colors you're going to use and, and then you end up with something. That picture over there of the sheep with the tree, I took another painting that was a failure. It was a woman playing a cello and I never felt like it was a very... Um, it didn't meet my, it didn't touch my heart. Mm. I turned it upside down. Oh, wow. And I started painting this on top of it. And that's where this painting came from. So, and I'm not saying that's a great painting. I'm just saying it's a different kind of thing. So it, everything that's there, all the choices of color that are there come from the original painting but then with something else added to it and kind of intermingled with it. And uh -huh. um, when I first discovered this way of painting, I had done a portrait of a woman that I didn't like the portrait very well. And I'd thrown the piece of paper in my drawer and just forgotten about it. And a few years later, I met a woman that I respected greatly who was a paraplegic and she had a three-year-old daughter. And I asked her if it would be okay if I painted a picture of her. And she said, sure. So I took a picture of her with her daughter on her lap in the wheelchair. <clears throat> and then I thought, how am I going to paint her in a way that represents her beauty and her strength and her redemption story? Because she became a paraplegic when the baby was six months old. They were both thrown out of a car. And oh, thankfully, wow. the baby didn't didn't have any injuries but the but the wife um had this traumatic injury hmm. 
So I took this portrait out that hadn't worked and I turned it upside down and I started painting on top of it with my friend. And so I was always responding to this other work and responding to the other colors and the other shapes at the same time that I was thinking about her and her story. Hmm. And it interweaves in a different way. And I kind of think that that's the way redemption works in the universe is that that God is weaving a new kind of beauty, but by using the broken things that are already here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somehow it's like that. He is so pleased with that. He is so pleased. And like, I can, I can understand it kind of intuitively in the attraction, but somehow he's so pleased with that dark or that difficult thing being transformed, like through the death, Oh man, this goes straight back to what we're talking about. It's like through the death of the tree and through the loss, there's like a glory that it can participate in. So yeah, through the death of the tree, it's now going to be participating in God in a whole new, in a through its self-emptying of its tree identity into now it's participating in this church, like this magnificent um, cosmic participation in god and that's so that's so i mean yeah <laughs> i keep saying i don't understand it i don't it's 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 certainly beyond me but at the same time i can also say i get it intuitively like i'm so attracted to it so yeah and so i mean what you're saying is i think and it's really cool like you you have two paintings one it seems like one is almost like being and the other is like becoming <laughs> <laughs> in that manner like it's a in order for there to be becoming there has to be something um something new and something on the fringe and something on the on the outside like that expansion but well, yeah it that, does say that the spirit of god hovered over the 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 waters and some people translate that waters as being the you know the original chaos i don't mm-hmm. know if that's her- heretical or not you hear so many things but but it, it may be that the original universe is also created some, I mean, how do we know? We have no idea, but um, chaos probably plays a very big role in something. It's certainly chaos is, is uh, if, if both being and becoming are essential, then mm-hmm. God is something before being and becoming because yeah. God is right. He is all in all. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is something I've been talking to a few friends about. I think like the first 10 words of scripture are the absolute key. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And I think it's, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think of heaven and earth. I tend to think of it. I'm careful because I, I want to give, um, I don't want to go too far, but I tend to think of it as heaven um, in the sense of heaven is like the realm of it's oh man i can't use that word using that word is the problem you cannot use the word realm can't talk about the realm of the spirit because when you say that what i was gonna say is um heaven is the realm of the spirit earth is the realm of the physical but when you bifurcate it you're literally to call it different realms is the problem it's like what you're saying if you say the realm of the spirit is that there's such a thing as spirit existing that's not embodied and that's like the opposite of everything i'm trying to like that's the opposite of what I'm trying to say and, and how I want to understand things. Um, but you can think of like, I think of heaven as 
spirit. Um, you can think of to put more like, I always try to put secular words for people to really get what I'm basically where I'm coming from. Cause most of our language is based in such a secular way. Um, so I think of like spirit as motivational state, um, habitual disposition. I think these are traditional explanations, but you can think of like the realm of the spirit, um, in, in, in Wolfgang's, you know, Wolfgang's icon is super helpful for this. Um, it's the Ave eternal realm in the, in the, in the, in the center. Again, I don't like the word realm. Um, cause it's like, you can't have, it's, it's kind of like to say it's a realm, a spiritual realm and the physical realm. It's like to say, cause everything has like a left side and a right side. Like you can look at this water bottle. There's a left side to it and a right side of it. That doesn't mean there's a realm of the left of everything and a realm of the right of everything. It's like, no, these are the two different aspects. There's no such thing as, as an idea that's not instantiated. And there's no such thing as, as like physical matter that's not if if nobody's aware of it and i i mean that very broadly like the mind of god um animals plants you can you can choose what you like with any of that but if there's no awareness of a thing it doesn't exist and so it's like the 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 stuff that exists and the awareness of it and so yeah and so like i'm totally comfortable in this manner saying i believe that when christ died on the cross he created the cosmos I don't think that the creation of the cosmos in a physical manner and then Christ coming along as like a guy 2000 years ago, that somehow the creation at the beginning is like higher. It's like, no, in that perfect act of absolute unity and multiplicity landing in action. And again, this goes back to the Eucharist. That's what we are wanting to participate in, in participating in the Eucharist. It's like, there's the absolute unity and there's the absolute, um, and the absolute multiplicity. So I think like generally speaking, I think people are very Gnostic tending to be very Gnostic when they think about these things, but yeah, it's like heaven and earth to me, that is, there's the, there's the realm of the ideas or spirit um, and the realm of the physical. It's hard to, you know, it's actually the better word, a word that I've been liking. And you can tell me if you like this, it's so hard to find the right word is just aspect, the aspect of the spirit and the aspect of the physical or the embodied. It's mind and body. Then they're both aspects of whatever the thing is. Like there's no such um, logos of this water bottle, this water bottle. There's no such thing as this. If there's no awareness of it, there's also no such thing as this. If there's no physical stuff making it up. So there's the aspect of it. Like I'm, my ontology is that consciousness is the is fundamental mm -hmm. like i'm not i'm not saying consciousness is epiphenomenal or like what i mean is that the awareness is just like what i don't subscribe to is this kind of like modernist worldview um i think this is probably obvious at this point but i don't subscribe to the idea that like everything is just physical stuff and then us being aware of it is like just an after the fact kind of um epiphenomenon it's like no actually it's a it, you need both. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. You could say they're both two aspects or two categories, two different um, aspects. I like aspects. Two different aspects of anything. There's nothing that exists without consciousness. There's nothing that exists without the physical instantiation of it. Well, and it seems as though when God creates, He's creating two aspects or two whatever. Okay, whatever word we're going to use for that, heaven and earth. There have to be two so that there can be a relation between the two. 
the relation is not everything. Some people say the relation is everything, right? Mm -hmm. um, some people say the context is everything, but I don't buy that. I think the two have to be there in order for that relation to exist. Yeah. So you have the two that are real and then you have the relation between them, which is, yes. you know, then you have your three. Um, you are stating that you think God is being and becoming, or I shouldn't say God, but reality is being and becoming. It's the exact same thing. And, and I do think, I mean, I really believe that in some, maybe it's a metaphysical way. Um, and I don't know if I'm even using the words right, that, that Christ himself is reality. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that, that when we are seeking to be aligned to reality, we are actually seeking to somehow be more and more aligned with Christ and that the two of them are somehow, somehow. It's proper participation. Yeah. No, it seems to me like um, a good way to think about this. Cause as you're saying that I can hear my like atheist friend, cause I'll probably get him to listen to this and he'll be like, dude, I don't get what you're going on about once you start talking about like Christ is reality. And so <laughs> I can hear him in my head. So I'm trying to think like, okay. <laughs> the problem is that we are in a crazy conundrum, whether we like it or not, whenever we talk about such things as ultimate reality, it is, um, yeah, my, I think of my pursuit of Christ, not so much as, oh, this is just like, <laughs> this is makes so much perfect sense as much as like, okay, where else will I go? There is nothing higher. There's nothing beyond this that I could possibly pursue or participate in. So when you say that, what I thought of is, I think this would be classified as really platonic, what I'm going to say, but um, maybe somebody can correct me on that. How exactly how much this is Plato or not. Um, I think of like, okay, whenever we define anything, when we categorize stuff, we do it for a reason. What's the reason? And the reason is you're always directed. There's always a direction. And so to say that Christ created the cosmos when he died on the cross, it's like in, a, I, in perfect goodness, that's how we categorize everything to begin with. And so it doesn't, there's not an objective reason to categorize like even our entire cosmos, there's not an objective reason to categorize anything any one way or any any other way. There's not an objective reason why this is a water bottle or whatever. It's like, no, we do we classify this as water bottle um, because a reason, because of pursuit of the good. It's because we are aimed towards good. And so in that manner, it's like the good literally defines all of reality, all the reality that we see, all the reality that we all all of our senses can um can can touch but it's like clearly then the highest good is the purpose like there's no it's i'm not trying to make a claim when i say that it's like by definition when we categorize things like people who talk about the big bang or whatever it's like they just say okay here's my little miracle which explains how like everything is accidental it's like okay i'm going to explain through the through this little theory, I'm going to explain how everything is actually physical and um, we can like objectively categorize things in this way, that way, that way. It's like, no, sorry, dude. No, you cannot. There is no objective reason to make categories. 
the reason is always transjective. Like what I mean is it's not totally subjective, relativist, which is the stuff that you were kind of hesitating about, um, which sometimes, sorry, Miguel, sorry, Ian, Miguel, Krista, I'm not trying to like bash him or anything. I love him. He's helped me so much, but he can tend to be um, on that side of things, like all about becoming and all about, um, yeah, all about marginality and seeing like seeing transformation, but not seeing what needs to be like Miguel Chris says, um, relationship is prior to relata. So rela the relationship is prior to the things which are related. And you're saying no, like it needs to have both. It needs to have except that if he really meant that, then the relationship he would be talking about would be the, the relationship of love among the father, the son and the Holy spirit before the beginning of time. Yeah. If he really meant that, then, yeah. then I can buy that. Uh, you know, that's actually, I never thought about that. You're helping me. So I never thought about that. No, that's, I mean, that's great. In a way, if he does mean that, like you say, that is because it is God who creates heaven and earth. I, and I so, think it sounds to me like he's moving that direction because the way he talks now is significantly more in that direction than he talked when he wrote the master and his emissary. Okay. And, and so, um, <clears throat> I want to get back to the cells because I think it's yeah. such a beautiful picture when, when the, when the organism is developing and the two arms are developing. And as Michael Levin always says, how do they know to stay equally um, to stay equivalent to each other when they're on the two sides of the body bilaterally? And how do they know when to stop growing once the fingers have all finished? How do they know? Yeah, because it's not in the DNA. Yeah, because it's not in the DNA. And um, <clears throat> it has to be that, they, that there is some sense. I'm using the wrong words here. There has to be something that is um, communicating. Give me a minute with that word. The good to these yeah. cells so that they know because because there is a purpose to those fingers. So the fingers have to be made in a certain way in order to facilitate their purpose, right? So that good is developing that purpose. Now, the communication can be, it doesn't have to be a voice from heaven or from the Evangel mm -hmm. coming down and mm -hmm. saying, stop. <laughs> Although I used to have an art teacher that would do that. She'd see me across the room and I was just about to go too far and she'd yell, stop. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. That's great. So, so I mean, I, I, I don't necessarily think it has to be that, but the environment into which the cells are growing is also communicating, just as mm -hmm. our environment communicates with us. When oh, we yeah. go too far on something, the environment pushes back on us, whether it's our relationships or the physical environment, whatever, right? Yeah. But it can also be, and I've, I've been talking to this guy recently who actually thinks that harmony and resonance have something to do with that communication. Now, you mm -hmm. said you've recently been thinking about harmony. Does that fit in at all with what you've been thinking about harmony? Or, or is your, I mean, why don't you tell me what you're thinking about? And then we'll see if there's any, any. Yeah, I don't relationship think. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I don't think in a comprehensive way. And I think. See, I think you may run into uh, with me the way that I think the way like my worldview 
it is based fundamentally around a mystery. And so trying to comprehend the very basis, um, like I, I see this definitely with people trying to develop theories of everything. It's like, you're trying to, it's basically, I'm just scared that people are building Towers of Babel. It's like, yes. you don't put a box around the very most fundamental thing. It's Godel's incompleteness theorem. It's like, you can have one or the other, you cannot have both. And so I, I think that like in the, at least in the way I direct the narrative of my life, it's like, okay, I am based around the mystery. And that mystery is the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth 2000 years ago and Jesus Christ eternally. And so my, it's like, that's a mystery. It's beyond me. So I wouldn't, I would be like really wary to talk about it, at least in, in terms of like pursuing a comprehensive, I know that you're not asking me to like do that. Yeah. What I will say though, is in regards to harmony. So, okay. So yeah, I mentioned the harmony thing because I found out from a guy named Garrett Vandenberg, who's become a friend of mine. Um, maybe you've heard of him or seen his interviews or something. So he told me that harmony, when you have a harmony, which is so precious in music, it's what is actually happening in a like physical way is that whatever it is, if it's the vibration of a string or um, a speaker or even like a drum, that thing, okay, what harmony is, is when the beats of one note are at the, okay, it's a polyrhythm. Do you know what a polyrhythm is? Keep going. Uh, I'll learn. Okay. okay. So a polyrhythm, um, I was trying to explain it without like having to explain what a polyrhythm is, but it's impossible. So harmony is when music is a polyrhythm. So what that means is you have the hertz of a certain, say like the chord on a violin is going, it's just happening really fast, like 20,000 times per second kind of thing. And so that's 20,000 20, hertz, which is like a really high note. It's like a really high A is exactly 20,000 hertz. That's not what it is, but just as an example. Okay. And so when you get things coming in to your ear and they're happening in a polyrhythm, that's what harmony is. Now, I'll give you an example of a polyrhythm. The satisfaction of a polyrhythm is you have two different things going at different paces. Okay, this is why it's important. It's multiplicity and unity at the same time. Two things going together and they land on the one, but then they go at different paces. So I'll do it with my fingers. So with one hand, I'll do one, two, three, one, two, three. And with the other hand, I'll be going one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But because this one, even though it's a different pace, it's going a little bit faster. They both land on the one. That's satisfying. That's the satisfaction of what harmony is when we hear it. Okay, so here's the example. It's like, so that's a, that's a two over three polyrhythm. On one hand, I'm going, one hand's going one, two, three, one, two, three. The other one's going one, two, one, two. Here's a three over four. And note the time that both fingers flick is when two different paces land on the one and it's satisfying to us. And remember, that's literally what the joy of harmony is in all music. So you can hear where it lands on the one, one. One, two, three, one, two, well, three. Actually, we can two, see, three, but we can't four, hear. One, two, three. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. That's perfectly okay. I mean, we get the general idea. Yeah. It's very satisfying, even with those rhythms, when you hear those rhythms in a counterpoint like that. It's very satisfying. Um, so harmony has 
two structures, right? Because there's each individual note that has all the, the harmonic tones that go all the way up out of that note. When you strike that note, the resonance has within it certain harmonic tones in it as well, which is what makes a note, uh, an extended note so much more beautiful than just, um, you know, like a plink is sort mm -hmm. of the harmonics are gone, but when it, when it's and then you can hear the harmonics stacking up. And then you also have the harmony of, of that note along with other notes. And so then you have all these, these resonances. It's, so I think there's just so much more complexity, even in a simple one, three, five uh, chord, then we're recognizing that we're hearing because we're not only recognizing the C, E, and G, but we're recognizing the the joining of all the harmonics of the C and the E and the G as they're as it's played together. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but it's so the much beauty and complexity. Exactly, it's the complexity and the unity. And so, just complexity is obviously chaos. But it's the fact that they then land on the one, that they land together. That's the most satisfying thing in music. It's like, so when, whenever you hear something beautiful musically, it's like, this is waves hitting my ear in such a manner that they are unified and then they're separating. And then they're unified and then they're separating. So it's like a marriage. Like you come together and you unify on the principle, but then you go at your different paces. And then you unify again on the principle. And so, and like when you do that, reality works properly that's a proper participation everything that we're talking about being and becoming it's like with only the center with only if all we did was just land on the one boom 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 there's no harmony there's no beauty it's like reality doesn't it's not just boring it's like there's not a thing there but then when you have all the expansion it's like you have the meeting on the one and then the separation at different paces but then the meeting on the one again and so that's the beautiful, that's the beautiful thing. And that's, it's just crazy to me that that is actually what's happening. When we hear harmony in our ears, it's because there's a polyrhythm of two different rates of things hitting our ear at such a rate that they are unifying and then going separate ways and then unifying and then going separate ways over and over. And when you were talking, I, I got this really expanded picture of what marriage is really like as well. I mean, that that's a perfect picture of marriage. If your whole time was spent in bed together, <laughs> exactly, there'd be no there there at all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But because you're you're going off and each doing you know your own creative endeavors and working and uh, caring for children and whatever all you might be doing, and then coming together and then going apart and then coming together, that's what brings the the beauty into the union as well. So it's the whole marriage is this great picture of unity and multiplicity. Mm -hmm. And uh, when Peterson talks about classical music, the, the great moments of meaning are in classical music are when the theme has gone off and is all of a sudden doing its own thing out there. And then all of a sudden the theme comes back and yeah. when the theme comes back and everything stacks up in that moment. It's like so satisfying, right? Yeah, it's redemption again. And it's the spirit of adoption in the manner, not that I am giving the spirit of adoption to my kids as much as me and my kids are participating in it together. But what, what I mean is like, we are, we are all like genetically and of different like family, but we are coming together on the one literally. And I mean, God, it's like, there's a way in which 
our family, physically speaking, our family is harmony. It is like we come together on the one and then we go, we are like from all different foreign places. And that's me. And like, even my upbringing, I am, I exist because of adoption. I exist as a Western person. I am so far on the fringe. I was before the call, I was praying and I was, man, just like, I was having such a sense that when Jesus came to the world, he came like for me, the fact that he came for the Gentiles was like, okay. And then Rome was taken over through the love of the widows and the children, like taking care of the widows and the children is how Christianity took over Rome. It took like 300 years. And then that expanded and expanded all the way to me, this like extreme foreigner in Northern BC. And now I get to participate in the story as well. And now I am also like, I have through adoption, I've, I've now gathered a family. So it's like, I mean, you can even think of it in the fact that all of us have different genetics. We all have the same last name. That's a smaller way to see it. All of us, you know, we have come from different places, different foreign women, you could say, um, but drawn together um, in that kind of legs of a chair coming together to serve chair. The thing though, I want to mention, cause I didn't, I wasn't clear enough when I talked about the illustration of leg of a chair, that doesn't negate the identity of leg of a chair just because it's participating in reality properly. doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore. And so I think that's really key. It's, it's key to understanding a Christian vision instead of a Vedic vision for sure. Um, it's like, because you participate up and up and up, you also realize there's no church without all of the members and all the families and all the uh, bits of wood and all the little atoms that make up every grain of wood. It's like without the particulars, there is not the same theosis going up and up and up. Um, and so, yes, that's self-emptying, but it's not negation. It's the same thing in our family. Yeah, I think that is so that is so key because there's the big argument against individuality, which we're not going to get into here because we've got to wrap this up. But but it is true that every single human being is an individual and every leg of a chair is an individual. <laughs> Just even if you made them all exactly the same on a machine there would still be imperfections in each one of them. And there would still be slightly different molecules and atoms making up that chair. And even if you go all the way down to the smallest particles of the universe, every one of them has an individual identity and, um, and it has to be that way. It has yeah. to be that way because if, if they were all the same, the universe would collapse and, Mm-hmm. And it's intended to be unity and multiplicity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty of both aspects because like just unity, it doesn't work. It just will not work. And so, yeah, you see it in, in um, you can think of the cosmos, like you could think of it as, oh, it's just fundamental particles. Like if you want to be total physicalist, you have to end up saying this is just physical, you know, this is just fundamental particles in time and space. That's all like, there's not a narrative. Um, and so I think that's really unsophisticated. I think it's much more mysterious of a narrative. The crazy thing is, okay, every leg of the chair is different Then how do we know that they're all leg of a chair? And that's vertical causation. It's like identity is given from above. We know that a water bottle is a water bottle and we know that it is, even though it shares 
no exact properties with any other water bottle. It is its individual self. And so it's like narratively, so narrative truth is way above and beyond that kind of factual truth. I think, you know, I think facts, you can think of facts existing and that's fine with me. Um, but the narrative truth defines all of the facts. And so there's no objective reason why when we look at any leg of a chair, we call it leg of a chair or water bottle. It's like that identity is given from above. It's consciousness. It's like, we don't, that's not from individual me. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's at least how I, how I, with Wolfgang's work, how well, I grappled so, with so it. So can I clarify one thing you, you said, and I, you may, maybe you meant it when you said it, it, it did, it hit me a little wrong as when you said just unity, by, unity by itself wouldn't work. But I'm tempted to say that unity by itself, I'm, I'm going to leave that alone apophatically <laughs> and say multiplicity by itself doesn't work for sure. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. See, I would, I would say neither work. Like you, you can't have, I don't know what we're talking about, at least in the cosmos. I know there's a mystery of the okay, Trinity. Okay. You're talking about inside the cosmos. I totally agree with you. Yes. 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 Yeah. Precisely. Okay. Yeah. And, and I only cut myself short. I should have said unity by itself doesn't work. Multiplicity by itself doesn't work in the way that like, it's just chaotic fundamental particles mm -hmm. that are not gathered to leg of a chair without the identity given from above. Yes. Yeah. 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 This has been a wild ride, Matthew. It's really <laughs> it been fun. Been. And anytime <laughs> yeah. you want to talk again, let me know what you're thinking about while you're out there doing all. And, and by the way, I, maybe people don't know this because you didn't say specifically, but you and your wife have come up with a particularly interesting plan to allow each of you to have the maximum amount of time to be with the children so that you you have this business in the summer washing windows and then and then in the winter you have more time to be with the children and yeah we share has, yep roughly 50 50 did i tell you that in chino yeah and then so then okay. your wife has a six month gig um earning money and then yep. six months with the children more or less uh it's it's not as exact as that but yeah that's our way of sharing roughly sharing parenting 50 50 um, mm -hmm. If any one of us did more than that, we would go crazy. Somebody would die. And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you have to have a way of making money as well, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah no, I, it sounds like all this work you're doing on your house would make a terrific YouTube series. <laughs> <laughs> I don't suppose yeah, you've well, been doing, uh, I don't suppose you've been keeping a, a photographic record of, your work no not really no uh, i'd love to do that kind of thing but no it comes down to it comes down to uh what exactly am i participating in and even to yeah. like make this conversation happen is you know you know it, everything is sacrifice it's the yom kippur sacrifice That's you're true. always choosing what you're serving and what you need to cut away and so yeah i would love i would love to do these kinds of things but no um generally speaking my life is very embodied as just a young dad, young and serious dad. Ted Steeritz told me that um, we can call ourselves, there's three of us who went to Chino, me, Caleb, and Ted. And between the three of us, we have 13 kids now. And uh, I think only one of us is 30. And uh, so we've named ourselves Yas Dads, Young and Serious Dads. <laughs> That's great. That's so great. Well, it gives me hope for the future.
I have to say, it's been a delight to talk with you, Matthew. Thank you so much. And, and uh, I will let you get back to your embodied life. <laughs> Thank you, Karen. Yeah, it's been an absolute joy. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. You too.